Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 4th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 23 of our series, The Protocols of Satan, and it's subtitled Jewish Lies and Motivations. We really won't get into the protocols this evening, however, since we have a lot of other things we would like to, to, to talk about. We have elaborations on our talk from last week, and we have some other important things that we would like to define before we move forward with our presentation of the protocols. We subtitled the last episode of this series, The Protocols of Satan. The Midgard Serpent and the Enslavement of Christendom. Of course, it should have been the Jews and the Enslavement of Christendom. But we chose to use the term Midgard Serpent for a couple of reasons. First, in Protocol Number 3, the authors of the Protocols themselves claim to have the serpent as the symbol of their people. As they had said, that today I can tell you that our goal is close at hand. Only a small distance remains. And the cycle of the symbolic serpent, the symbol of our people, will be complete. When this circle is completed, then all the European states will be enclosed in it as in strong claws. Secondly, we wanted to claim back some Christian symbolism from the neo-pagans who have adopted it for themselves, evidently not being aware that these things were employed by Christians long before they were even considered by anyone to be pagan. I saw a response from a certain supposedly knowledgeable pagan to what I had said about the Midgard serpent, Odin and Loki, in our last episode. And he insisted on separating certain elements which I had mentioned and claiming that they were late additions to his paganism. While that would only support my claim that the concepts were Christian in the first place, it startles me that he seemed to think that it was somehow an original documented organized paganism which was in any way universal in its beliefs before Christianity came along. As the ancients attested, the Germanic tribes did not even write in their own language. Aside from symbols found on certain scattered archaeological artifacts, of which the meanings can only be hypothesized, there are no scriptures of early paganism. The earliest Germanic writers wrote in Latin and Greek. And while various Roman tribes, various, I'm sorry, European tribes, had similar myths and beliefs. They were by no means consistent with one another. So Germanic neo-pagans must resort to the records of the Romans, Greeks, and the ancient Near East to understand what they perceive to be their own paganism. And eventually, they must arrive at the same place, which is also the source of the biblical literature. But our point here is not to contend with pagans, especially in a discussion of the protocols of Satan. Rather, we only want to illustrate 
something that ancient Europeans held in common in both Christian and pagan literature, which is the knowledge of an enemy that would eventually have them surrounded to a point which would culminate in a great war, and that the symbol which was used to describe that enemy identifies the enemy to this very day, even in their own words. The serpent was a symbol of the rulers of the ancient Egyptians, Assyrians, and other world empires in the earlier times, even the Hittites. The serpent has been worshipped in the Orient and elsewhere among the non-white races since the dawn of time. The serpent was used as a symbol to identify the enemies of Christians all throughout the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ informs us that it is the dragon which gives its power to the beast, which in that context is a reference to Rome and the coming rule of the papacy. The terms dragon, serpent, and leviathan were all used to identify the enemies of the God of Scripture. The same international bankers whose early manifestations included the priesthoods of ancient Babylon have been operating since the dawn of time and propping up kingdom after kingdom which they could use to control from the shadows in order to enslave the common people. No ancient writing identifies them as does the Christian scripture. Yet here in the protocols they admit that they themselves know it as well. However, modern Christians, Christians over the last thousand years, are unaware even of this, that the concept of the serpent in the scriptures represents a race of people who are eternally opposed to God. They fail to understand this because ever since the church of the popes started to become involved with regional politics and money lenders, converso Jews have been writing Bible commentaries which obscure the facts of scripture and history as these moneylenders and priests of Satan increasingly gained power within the Christian society, the academic literature became more and more favorable towards them, to the point where now Christians worship Jews rather than Jesus. The protocols are a result of that power, and as we have said before, when the protocols were written, the authors were already confident that they had control of the society to the point where everything outlined within them could indeed be executed. Before continuing with our presentation and discussion of the protocols, I want to discuss the term bourgeois. That is because sometimes we might see the term used in a manner where we may want to defend the people given the label. And sometimes, on the other hand, we may despise the people which the term describes. But that is because the use of the term in regards to whom it identifies is not entirely consistent. The term bourgeois originally referred to the people who lived in the borough, the burg, meaning the town or city of any given area. <coughs> we see the stem of the word in the suffix of many of the names of our modern cities, such as Williamsburg, Hamburg, or Strasbourg. 
In the ancient world, towns often formed around places convenient for markets so that goods could be exchanged. So they were also convenient places for craftsmen. In Greek and Hebrew cities, because the people could easily congregate at the markets, they also became the seats of the judges and centers of civil business. Likewise, pagan temples, which were also the banks and often the brothels of the ancient world. The pagan temples served as banks and whorehouses, were set up in nearly every town. And this is an aspect of ancient paganism, which most neo-pagans seem absolutely oblivious to. But the wealthy landowners of the countryside, whether they employed serf or slave to operate their estates, could congregate in the towns for other reasons, both cultural and political, because of the luxuries they could enjoy in them. And they often lived in the towns rather than on their own estates. The Greek word skale means rest or leisure. And from this we have the English word school and words such as scholar or scholastic. The word academy is different as it comes from the name of the Greek hero after whom the gymnasium was named where Plato had taught at Athens. In ancient times, only the landed class, the bourgeois, had the luxury of collecting in schools to learn and discuss philosophy, music, mathematics, and other such topics of learning. Even Paul of Tarsus taught at one such school for several years. Here is where our Western culture was developed. The enemies of a society may exploit class divisions in order to upset the status quo and subvert the society. But the landed class are the children of those men who spilled or risked spilling their blood for the land in the first place and who managed to hold it securely for the further growth and benefit of their own tribe. Furthermore, It is their obligation to further risk their lives in the defense of their holdings whenever the need arises. And defending their holdings, they also defend not only their own families, but the serfs and tradesmen who are generally the less fortunate of their own countrymen that they otherwise employ at labor. From these concepts, from these basic simple concepts, arose the nobility, the original landed classes of the families and tribes which became the European nations. And the system of honor, privilege, and protection amongst the classes which we now know as feudalism. However, the biggest mistake that the nobility of Europe made was to admit and employ the Jew. And as we have shown here in other contexts, the Jew came to be the middleman between greedy kings and the lower classes, changing the whole dynamic between nobility and commoner in Europe. Throughout medieval England, the Jew was frequently depicted with horns and a long tail, as a devil would be, because medieval Englishmen understood that the Jews were the devil. <laughs> 
During the Middle Ages, when usury became more and more common in Europe, the Jew was the usurer and profited from the blood of Christians, while Christians were generally forbidden to loan money at usury. So for centuries, the Jews, who forever despised all Christians, accumulated wealth and bid the time when they would overthrow the nobility in order to replace it with themselves. But the Jew could never overthrow the nobility without first Judaizing a large segment of the society. Freemasonry was one vehicle which they had used to this end. But Freemasonry only accelerated the process. And the first vehicle was humanism, from which also sprung neo-paganism, which we had discussed at length here in our presentations of both the life of Martin Luther and our discussions on the Jews in medieval Europe. But in concert with the rise of humanism, once usury finally became accepted by the Roman Church, as well as by the Protestants of the West, who followed after Calvin, the inevitable result was the plunge into materialism, which accommodates the Judaization of society. We just aren't certain whether it was the Jews who persuaded certain Christian sects to accommodate usury, or if it was Christians who wanted to compete with the Jews, something which we find more likely to be the case, since, except for the occasional setback, the Christian prohibition on usury seems to have never really inhibited the Jews. During this process, a new bourgeois had formed in Europe, which was the bourgeois of the usurer and the so-called capitalist that was comprised mostly of Jews and Judaized Christians. The development of industry helped this new bourgeois to grow wealthy enough and strong enough to eventually overthrow the old order. So, as we saw from the pages of Nesta Webster's World Revolution in our last segment of the series, the Jews through the Freemasonic Lodges and other secret societies, had led the overthrow of the nobility of Europe in a series of revolutions which spanned many decades. And nearly as soon as the unsuspecting serfs had broken free of the nobles and gained control of the land upon which they and their ancestors had toiled for centuries, they fell into the hands of the usurers who became their new lords. The Jews had obviously understood how this process would work and boasted in these protocols of the inevitability that by these means they would gain control of society. So speaking in very general terms, the original term bourgeois refers to the class of those who originally took the greatest risks and toiled the hardest for the establishment and subsequent maintenance of their nation, and therefore they and their posterity enjoyed the benefits of owning the land. It was this class who then developed the culture of the nation through the transmission of learning and the accumulation of knowledge, and if they did not do that themselves, they patronized those who did. It is this bourgeois which we as Christians should want to defend. But to Jewish comics like Karl Marx, 
The term bourgeois represents only the new capitalist property holding class. The class created after the overthrow of the old order, which exploits the lower classes while taking no risks of its own outside of superficial financial risks and doing no work of its own except to push money and debt notes across the table. This is a bourgeois which we should all despise. And the dichotomy of Marxism takes advantage of that so that they can destroy and demean the original bourgeois and the original Christian values that it once represented. But the original bourgeois itself, having been Judaized and embracing materialism, even if it continued to marginally represent Christian values, hurried along its own demise. Wherever the Jews have not destroyed it, it is only because they intermarried with it, and eventually they became it, which is certainly the case in England. But even in England, until the beginning of the last century, it was the landed class which produced the majority of scholars. And the majority of scholars were also warriors and officers in the military. Ulrich von Hutten, the misguided poet knight of the Reformation, was an example of this dying breed in Germany. Now in modern times, the scholars and the warriors are two different classes entirely. The first never seen battle while they talk about war all the time. And the second being uneducated never really knows what it is that they are supposed to be fighting for. When the Marxists attack the bourgeois, more often than not they are attacking the values of the original bourgeois while they are also attacking the actions and attitudes of this modern replacement capitalist bourgeois which also happens to be, to a great extent, Jewish. But for, the, but for the most part, this new bourgeois does not hold or reflect those same traditional values. That is why many readers fail to understand such writings as the Communist Manifesto, a document which we hope to discuss at length here, one day in the near future, if we ever get through the protocols. So while we do not care for the new capitalist bourgeois, which has come into its wealth mostly through its willing participation in a Judaized society, we would indeed defend the ancient values of the original bourgeois, which may not have been perfect in every way, but which developed from our own tribal history within the context of our own generally Christian society. We called Karl Marx a Jewish comic. Unfortunately, his comedy had very serious consequences. He created a very simplistic portrait of the bourgeois based on purely materialistic terms because the Jew does not understand anything but materialism. It is beyond the ability of the Jew to truly comprehend spiritual values. The socialism of Marx was not the organic socialism formed around a community of men of a common blood, common values, common morality, and a common mythos, or religious outlook, who could work together for the benefit of the entire community. 
Rather, Marxism insisted that the state should hold all property, and where Marxism prevailed, the end result was that its fellow Jews came to own it all. Where Marxism failed, the Jewish capitalists profited all the more in the pretense of opposing it. Marxism was a purposeful ploy by the same Jews who wrote the protocols to enclose the Christian world in a dichotomy by which Jews would benefit either way. He managed to redefine socialism solely for the benefit of the international Jews who would use it for that very purpose. Marxism was never socialism, but it was only the socialism that the Jews promoted in order to obscure every other economic path and narrow the field of possibilities to what suited their own objectives. So to this very day, Karl Marx, the Jewish comedian, has put the joke over on Christians everywhere, and his fellow Jews continue to charade. The first treachery of Marx as well as his critics, is the failure to distinguish the new capitalist bourgeois from the real and original bourgeois. The second treachery of Marx, as well as his critics, is to fail to distinguish between Marxist socialism and true organic socialism. So the dichotomy between Marxism and capitalism holds all sides in the hands of the Jews and prevents men from finding their way back to the original ideals which for centuries shielded them from the Jews. I have taken the risk of oversimplifying complex subjects in these observations and have summarized them in my own words and without documentation so that hopefully we may proceed through the protocols with a better understanding of terms. And why our opinions may, from time to time, seem to conflict, because the application of terms in the source literature is not consistent. As a digression, we must say that what we call true organic socialism, where men of a common blood, common common values, common morality, and a common and preferably Christian religion, is indeed the essence of Adolf Hitler's National Socialism. And it is Christian in every way. Which is why Hitler embraced Christianity without embracing the already Judaized churches that only pretended to represent it. Both uphold nationalism. Both uphold property rights. Both allow a man to enjoy the fruits of his own labor. But both also insist that a man has the responsibility and must take consideration for his own kindred by working for the benefit of his community as well as himself. All of these things are anathema to the Jew. And for that reason have they worked so hard to destroy Christianity. And for that reason, they also had to destroy National Socialism. They maintain power through lies. And they have even trained all the Goyim to lie to one another continually on their behalf. 
but not yet are we going to return to our presentation of the protocols. Instead, we are going to pick up another topic from our previous presentation, which is that of supposed Jewish truth-tellers. Speaking of these, in our last episode we said that men fall for this all the time. In the likes of a Nathaniel Kapner, a Henry Macau, a Bobby Fischer, a Harold Rosenthal, or some other Jew who says things that the supposedly awakened Goyim like to hear. But they are all snakes in the grass who will perpetuate the greatest lies while feeding little pieces of an incomplete puzzle to naive fools. If we are ever going to come to the real truth, we must end our fascination with devils. Of course, we said this in regard to Myron Fagan and his many lies about Adolf Hitler and other things. I could have also included Benjamin Friedman and even several others in the list. But the fascination with these supposed Jewish truth-tellers or self-hating Jews or Jews who supposedly tell the truth is not new and it did not start with Myron Fagan. An even earlier supposed Jewish truth-teller was Benjamin Disraeli, and Henry Ford seemed to be enamored with him. So here we are going to present and discuss a chapter of the International Jew, which is titled Disraeli, British Premier Portrays the Jews. In it, Ford uses segments of Disraeli's famous novel, Coningsby, to show how Disraeli was rather candid in his portrayal of Jewish behavior through his character Sidonia. While this is true, there is always strings attached, and we will discuss some of those based on the statements in Ford's chapter. This book, Coningsby, Coningsby, I'm sorry, was published in 1844, a short time before the revolutions which plagued practically all of the continental Europe, continental European nations in 1848. It is widely held that the book is based on the life of Nathan Mayer Rothschild and that the Sidonia character is a composite <coughs> of traits of both Rothschild and Disraeli himself. But it is not the book itself which is as important to us here as the conclusions which Ford draws from it. The book was set in 1830s England in the political aftermath of the Reform Act of 1832, which itself was aimed at diminishing some of the political influence of the British bourgeois. So the following article was published in the Dearborn Independent on the 18th of December 1920 and we shall inject plenty of our own comments and criticism. So from the International Jew, Disraeli, British Premier, portrays the Jews. Not quite. The Jews have complained, reading Henry Ford, that they are being misrepresented. It is their usual complaint. They are always being misrepresented and persecuted, except when they are being praised for what they are not. 
if the Jews were fully understood by the Gentiles, if the Christian churches, for example, were freed from their delusion that the Jews are Old Testament people, and if the churches really knew what Talmudic religion is, it is the like it is likely the misrepresentation would still be stronger. <coughs> As we always do in our critiques of articles from the International Jew, we credit Henry Ford for having written them, since he put his name to the book and the publication which first presented them. However, we are aware that many of them may have been written by William J. Cameron, or even by others of the staff at the Dearborn Independent, but we will credit Ford nevertheless. Here the author admits that the Jews are not the Old Testament people. It is not what we think it is that he means by that. Yet even with this claim, the Jews are often referred to as Judah in these articles. And that is not a correct identification. The Jews are as far removed from Judah as the Kathirs currently occupying London are related to the original Jutes, Angles, and Saxons. Continuing with Henry Ford, the downfall of Russia was prepared by a long and deliberate program of misrepresentation of the Russian people through the Jewish world press and Jewish diplomatic service. The name of Poland has been drawn in filth through the press of the United States under Jewish instigation. Most of the signers of the latest Jewish protest against the Dearborn Independence Articles being leaders in the vilification of Poland, whose sole crime is that she wishes to save herself from the Jews. All this real misrepresentation is regarded as the Jews' privilege. They're never criticized for it in the media because they own the media. We have for a long time thought that Eastern Europe, and Poland and Romania especially, were turned over to the Soviets after the Second World War so that the Jews could take vengeance upon their Christian enemies in those states, who after many centuries of experience with the Jews, certainly had come to hate them. The Christians of the West have not yet learned those lessons, continuing with Henry Ford, but wherever a hand has been raised to prevent the Jews overrunning the people and secretly securing control of the major instruments of life, the Jews have raised the cry of misrepresentation. They never meet the question outright. They are not meeting it now. They cannot meet it without confession. False denials, pleas for sympathy, and an unworthy attempt to link others with them in their fall constitute their whole method of defense. Freemasons may wonder how they come into this affair, as they see the name of their ancient order coupled with that of the Jews in the latest Jewish defense. It is all very easily understood by those who are acquainted with the Jewish strategy during the two centuries which comprise modern Masonic history. This is Ford's biggest blind spot. Ford, a Freemason, 
essentially admits that Freemasonry first is not really ancient at all. 200 years isn't what I would consider ancient. And indeed, modern Freemasonry was just over three centuries old when Ford wrote. He continues, Twice in the history of the United States, the people have been aroused by a sense of strange influences operating in their affairs. And each time the real power behind the influences was able to divert suspicion to the Freemasons. Once in George Washington's time, once in President Adams's time, this occurred, speaking of John Adams, ostensibly the first Adams, the second president of the United States, not his grandson, the seventh president, John Quincy Adams. Books were written, sermons preached, newspapers took up the search, but none of the observers saw the Jewish influence there. George Washington knew that the disloyal influence was not Masonic, but he saw signs of the concealed power trying to operate under the guise of Masonry. President Adams had not so clear a view of the matter, and Adams was not a Mason, and John Quincy Adams was an a quintessential anti-Mason. We can only imagine that these references to Freemasonic agitation during these first American administrations are attempts, are references to the attempts to bring America into the French side of their wars with the British, which began anew in 1793. The first attempt was tried by the Directorate, which ruled France after the French Revolution during the presidency of George Washington, and then again by the court of Napoleon Bonaparte during the presidency of John Adams. Near the start of the American Revolution, in 1778, the Continental Government signed a Treaty of Alliance with the King of France, who had now lost his head. So when they returned to war, when the French returned to war with the British, both the Directorate and then Napoleon Bonaparte had contended that the treaty should still be in force, so that America was obligated to join the war against the British. This was one of the motivating factors in the speech Washington had given as he left office concerning involvement in foreign wars. In 1826, after the William Morgan affair, Freemasonry suffered in its reputation and became quite unpopular. However, it was still a large part of the hidden hand behind national affairs, to which Ford seems to be oblivious. Perhaps he was oblivious because he himself was a Freemason. Thus he continues, Masonry emerged unstained, meaning from the attempts to drag the United States, to agitate the United States into joining France in the wars. Masonry emerged unstained because it was guiltless of subversive purposes. A pseudo-Masonry of French origin, given to atheistic and revolutionary purposes, strongly patronized by Jews, was the disturbing element. But all that the public was able to see was the Masonic similitude and not the Jewish hand. A recrudescence of this misrepresentation of the Masons also occurred in 1826 and from then until the other day 
when the leaders of American Jewry linked the name of Freemasonry with their own, the name of the order has been unscathed. And here we shall object to both the opinions of Henry Ford and Nesta Webster concerning British Masonry. First, we would assert that speculative Masonry had its origins in Britain and was exported to France during the exile of King James II. But, as we hope to have shown in our series on the Jews in medieval Europe, speculative Masonry merged alchemy, fascination with the Jewish Kabbalah, and the objectives of the Talmud were the secret society organized in such a manner that nefarious agendas could be conducted while keeping most of the membership blind to those ultimate purposes. Both Ford and Webster seem to miss the fact that England's great revolution happened in the days of Cromwell, after which the Jews regained entry into England. The Bank of England was founded, and nearly 200 years before they enjoyed emancipation on the continent, they were able to act almost as they wished in Britain, albeit there were some final political restrictions which were lifted in the 19th century. So in England... Freemasonry did not need to act in the revolutionary manner in which it did on the continent in order to achieve its objectives. They already had England in their pocket. In post-revolution America, Jews hardly had any restrictions, and therefore no further revolution was needed. That is the only thing that sets British Masonry apart and that allows us to be deceived into the idea that there may be good Freemasons while the rest of their doctrines are just as much anti-Christian as those of the French lodges. In truth, the Freemasons of Europe acted, acted in the manner in which they did so that the same Jews, who controlled England, could come to control the nations of Europe and by 1913, America as well. After that, every nation that they cannot control, they have employed America and England to help them destroy. Freemasonry in Europe was revolutionary because the Jews in England wanted to control the nations of Europe under their banking system. They already controlled England. They came to control America. No revolution no revolutionary behavior was needed in England and America to gain those objectives. Ford continues, This is to serve notice on the leaders of American Jewry that this time they will not be permitted to hide behind the name of Masonry, nor will they be permitted to hold up the name of Masonry as a shield to blunt the darts or as an ally to share the shafts aimed at their subversive purposes. That game has succeeded twice in the United States. It will never succeed again. Freemasonry is not and never was implicated in what the Jewish cabal has had in mind, and Freemasons everywhere are aware of the facts. And of course the Benai Brith Lodge of Freemasonry in Ford's time was causing much civil unrest and much agitation from 1913 when the ADL 
the ADL, the public relations arm of B'nai B'rith, was founded, along with other Jewish organizations such as the NAACP, etc. Ford was aware of Jewish treachery. How, how committed a Freemason he was, we cannot tell. The question has been frequently asked, because of Henry Ford, as to whether a Freemason can actually be an anti-Semite. There should be no doubt that Freemasonry upholds Jewish ideals and Jewish objectives, which is seen throughout their own writing, from the universal concepts of liberty, equality, and fraternity, to the proto-Zionist desire to rebuild Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem, and in its rituals, fables, and oaths. Freemasonry consistently espouses Jewish and anti-Christian ideals. But perhaps Ford himself did not know enough to understand the Judaism in Freemasonry. So he continues, It is a curious fact that just as the Jews have sought to operate through the Masons, and then leave that order to take the brunt of the ensuing assault, so also have they at times sought to operate through the Jesuits, playing the same trick with the name of that order. If the Jesuits and the Masons would compare notes, they could both report the same thing. Jews have sought to use both, and have been frustrated, although in consequence the names of both orders have suffered for a time. This is one of the coincidences between the protocols and the facts. It's not a coincidence at all. Ford thinks so. The protocols express themselves as against both the Masons and Jesuits, but willing to use both to attain Jewish purposes. What Ford should ask is why Jews, why Jews gain entry into and subvert both the Jesuits and the Freemasons so easily, because in essence, both of these groups have only been a mask for the Jews that control them, and have always controlled them. If the ideals of either group were truly Christian, Jews would not so readily subvert them and be able to operate from within them. Ford continues with another wrong conclusion. Both these orders are well able to take care of themselves, once they know the key to the Jewish plan. But there is much information on these matters of which the public is not aware, and at a future date a study may be made of the historical efforts of the Jews to use and destroy Freemasonry. Such a study will be useful in showing how Jewish influence operated in a day when the people had no means of identifying it as Jewish. The people attacked the thing they saw, but what they saw was not the source of the element they opposed. Progress has been made at least to this extent that nowadays, more than at any previous time, the world plan of the Jews is known and recognizable. And we will let Ford leave his discussion of these things with only one further criticism. Perhaps there would have been no speculative masonry without the Christian-European fascination with the Kabbalah and the need of the Jews to have vehicles by which to indoctrinate their Gentiles with the precepts of their Talmud and to execute their political objectives 
before they could participate in politics. Ford continues, The main purpose of the present article, however, is to show the reader that the Jews have not been misrepresented. The means of showing this being a presentation of the Jews by a notable Jew whom the Jews are delighted to honor. Now, since Ford wrote this, we have seen the pattern time and again repeated, by which truth-telling Jews are introduced to Christian patriots, and it is always just a little truth mixed in with a multitude of lies. So again, Ford continues, Benjamin Disraeli, who was Earl of Beaconsfield and Prime Minister of Great Britain, was a Jew and gloried in it. He wrote many books, in a number of which he discussed his people in an effort to set them in a proper light. The British government was not then so Jewish as it has since become, and Disraeli was easily one of the greatest figures in it. The proper light is, however, a lie in itself. And here, before we go, before we begin with, or before we commence with Ford's assessment of Disraeli, we're going to cite Arnold Lees's work on Jewish ritual murder, where he wrote, "The motive of ritual murder of Christians by Jews is almost certainly hate. It is, in fact, the same motive that Disraeli admitted to be the cause of revolutionary activities against Gentile governments." To use his words from his book, The Life of Lord George Bent- Bentinck, written in 1852. And he quotes Disraeli, who says in the book, The people of God cooperate with atheists. The most skillful accumulators of property ally themselves with communists. Of course, they invented atheism and communism. The peculiar and chosen race touched the hand of all the scum and low castes of Europe, and all this because they wished to destroy that ungrateful Christendom which owes to them even its name, and whose tyranny they can no longer endure. So Disraeli, striving to set Jews, as Ford says, in a proper light, asserts that they are the people of God, and the chosen race, and even that Christendom owes to Jews its name. All three things which are among the biggest of historical lies. Perpetuating these lies, so long as the people believe them, it does not matter how much truth he tells about treacherous Jewish behavior, because the Christian will always have to assume that the Jews are good people, being God's people. Disraeli is not perpetuating these lies for naught. He had as a good friend of his family, notable Englishmen and scholars such as Sharon Turner. And with the dawn of English archaeology in the Near East, the real Bible story was being discovered by such British scholars. So Disraeli was only safeguarding the interest of the Jews in England, who are really the children of the devil. Continuing with Henry Ford. In his book, Coningsby, there appears a Jewish character named Sidonia, 
in whose personality and through whose utterances Disraeli sought to present the Jew as he would like the world to see him. Sidonia first announces his race to young Coningsby by saying, I am of that faith that the apostles professed before they followed their master. The only place in the whole book where the faith is mentioned. Four times, however, in the brief preface to the fifth edition, written in 1849, the term race is used in reference to the Jews. Once again, we see this really perpetuating the biggest of Jewish lies. And Ford does not dispute it, even though he himself, at the beginning of this very article, referred to the delusion that the Jews are Old Testament people. In truth, though, the Jews are Old Testament people. The Edomites and Canaanites of the Old Testament. He continues... In the first conversation between these two, Coningsby and Sidonia, Sidonia reveals himself as a great lover of power and discourses charmingly of the powerful men of history, ending in this way, Aquaviva, Claudio Aquaviva, a late 16th, early 17th century Italian priest and Jesuit, Aquaviva was general of the Jesuits, ruled every cabinet in Europe, and colonized America before he was 37. What a career, exclaimed the stranger Sidonia, rising from his chair and walking up and down the room. The secret sway of Europe, an exclamation in reference to Aquaviva. Taking up a study of the character of Sidonia the Jew, and Ford has references here in page numbers, but I'm not going to repeat them. Disraeli the Jew begins to refer to the Jews as Mosaic Arabs. If a modern writer were to describe the Jews thus, virtually as Arabs of the Mosaic persuasion, it would be denounced as another attempt at persecution. But Disraeli did this a number of times his purpose evidently being to give the Jew his proper setting as to his original position among the nations. Again, he refers to them as Jewish Arabs. And here, while Ford had spoken of the delusion that the Jews are Old Testament people, being in conflict with himself, he seems to endorse the idea that Jews are Mosaic Arabs as the proper setting and original position of the Jews among the nations. <clears throat> but since the word Arab means mixed in the Hebrew language, and the original Israeli, Israelites were clearly white and had despised Arabs, Disraeli's truth-telling is actually absolute treachery. It's not truth at all. But we shall continue with Ford. Disraeli, Ford says, also gives voice to the feeling which every Jew has, that whoever opposes the Jew is doomed. Here's the key part of the treachery, because Christians, being led to believe that the Jews are God's chosen people, will of course believe that anybody who opposes the Jew is doomed. Knowing their Bible superficially, 
This is a feeling which is strongly entrenched in Christians also, that somehow the Jews are the chosen people, and that it is dangerous to oppose them in anything. <coughs> the fear of the Jews is a very real element in life. It is just as real among the Jews as among non-Jews. The Jew himself is bound in fear to his people, and he exercises the fear of the curse throughout the sphere of religion. I will curse them that curse thee. It remains to be proved, however, that opposition to the destructive tendencies of Jewish influence along all the principal avenues of life is a cursing of the Jews. If the Jews were really Old Testament people, if they were really conscious of a mission for the blessing of all nations, the very things in which they offend would automatically disappear. If the Jew is being attacked, it is not because he is a Jew, but because he is the source and life of certain tendencies and influences which, if they are not checked, mean the destruction of a moral society. Perhaps, for it is right to judge the Jew on the content of their character. But we see Ford disconnect the Jews from the promises to Abraham based merely on their behavior and then imagines that they have the capacity to change that behavior. So in essence, he too is admitting that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament, but they are not Old Testament people merely because they behave badly. So Henry Ford is not as awakened to the treachery of the Jews as much as we may have hoped. And by promoting Disraeli's truth-telling, he is unwittingly helping to promote even more grievous lies. So he continues, The persecution of the Jew to which Disraeli refers is that of the Spanish Inquisition, which rested on religious grounds. And that's a lie, which we will address shortly. Tracing the Sidonia family through the, a troubled period of European history, <laughs> excuse me, our Jewish author notes, during the disorders of the Peninsular War, a cadet of the younger branch of this family made a large fortune by military contracts and supplying the commissariat of the different armies. Certainly, it is a truth unassailable, applicable to any period of the Christian era. And of course, that was a quote. Ford is responding to a quote from Disraeli. That persecuted or not, wars have been the Jews' harvests. They were the first military commissaries. If this young Sidonia, in supplying the different armies went so far as to supply the opposing armies, he would be following quite perfectly the Jewish method as history records it. And we must say that military commissaries were around long before the time of Moses. However, it is true that modern Jews have always been military commissaries. However, in ancient times, they were Canaanites which even became a name which even became synonymous to the real Hebrews for merchant. The Spanish Inquisition did not rest on religious grounds. Rather, 
It rested on the fact that Jews who converted to Christianity under pretense and in order to gain the privileges of Christians continued to act as Jews and had even greater leverage as false Christians by which to oppress Christians. So the Spanish Inquisition rested on reacting to Jewish treachery. But Ford himself is unwittingly helping them once again by his poor characterization of its causes, by his misrepresentation. Returning to Ford, and at the peace, speaking of and quoting, quoting Coningsby, speaking of Sidonia, and at the peace, prescient of the great financial future of Europe, confident in the fertility of his own genius, in his original views of fiscal subjects, and his knowledge of natural resources, this Sidonia resolved to emigrate to England, with which he had, in the course of years, formed considerable commercial connections. He arrived here after the Peace of Paris, with his large capital. He stakes all that he was worth on the Waterloo loan, and the event made him one of the greatest capitalists in Europe. This is known to be true, to a degree, in relation to Nathan Ansel Rothschild, upon whose life the book was said to have been based. Ford continues to quote from it, quoting from Coningsby, No sooner was Sidonia established in England than he professed Judaism. (coughs) Sidonia had foreseen in Spain that after the exhaustion of a war of 25 years, Europe must require capital to carry on peace. He reaped the due reward of his sagacity. Europe did require money, and Sidonia was ready to lend it to Europe. France wanted some, Austria more, Prussia a little, Russia a few millions. Sidonia could furnish them all. The only country which he avoided was Spain. And Ford will ignore the fact that the Jews instigated these wars. But we digress. He continues, Here the Prime Minister of Great Britain, from the wealth of his traditions as a Jew and the height of his observation as a prime minister, describes the method of the Jew in peace and war, exactly as others have tried to describe it. He puts forward the same set of facts as others put forth, but he does it apparently for the Jews' glorification, while others do it to enable the people to see what goes on behind the scenes in war and peace. Sidonia was ready to lend money to the nations, but where did he get it in order to lend it? He got it from the nations when they were at war, It was the same money. The financiers of war and the financiers of peace are the same. And they are the international Jews, as Benjamin Disraeli's book for the glorification of Jewry amply testifies. Indeed, he testifies on the same page just quoted. It is not difficult, quoting Coningsby, to conceive that, after having pursued the career we have intimated for about ten years, Sidonia had become one of the most considerable personages in Europe. He had established a brother, or a near relative, in whom he could confide in most of the principal capitals. 
He was lord and master of the money market of, of the world, and of course virtually lord and master of everything else. And it is also true that this was the tactic of Rothschild, after he came to prominence among the bankers of England. Ford continues, This comes as near to being the international Jew as anything can be. But the Jews glory in the picture. It is only when a non-Jewish writer suggests that perhaps it is not good for society that a Jewish coterie should be lord and master of the money market of the world and as a consequence lord and master of everything else that the cry of persecution arises and here ford's conclusion is good but he allowed a river of lies to procure a trickle of truth that honest men could find without the help of a disraeli continuing with ford Strangely enough, it is in this book of the British Premier that we come upon his recognition of the fact that Jews had infiltrated into the Jesuits' order. And quoting Coningsby, he says, Young Sidonia was fortunate, and the tutor whom his father had procured for him, and who devoted to his charge all the resources of his trained intellect and vast and various erudition. A Jesuit before the Revolution since then an exiled liberal leader, now a member of the Spanish court, Rebello was always a Jew. He found in his pupil that precocity of intellectual development that is characteristic of the Arabian organization. There were many Rebellos in Europe up to that point in history, but it is true that Jews are Arabs. But Jews are neither Israelites nor Hebrews, and to completely expose the Jews, the true history of their origins must be exposed as well. <clears throat> they infiltrated ancient Judea, just as they later infiltrated every nation in Europe, just as they infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church, in part through the Jesuits and in part by other avenues. And it is amazing that even intelligent men do not see the pattern and extrapolate it back and examine the history of ancient Judea. Continuing with Ford, then followed in Sidonia's career an intellectual mastery of the world. He traveled everywhere, sounded the secrets of everything, and returned with the world in his vest pocket, so to speak, a man without illusions of any sort. And Ford turns back to Coningsby, and he quotes, There was not an adventurer in Europe with whom he was not familiar. No minister of state had such communication with secret agents and political spies as Sidonia. He held relations with all the clever outcasts of the world. The catalogue of his acquaintances, in the shape of Greeks, Armenians, Moors, secret Jews, Tartars, Gypsies, wandering Poles, and Carbonari, the secret society of 19th century Italy, would throw a curious light on those subterranean agencies of the world in general of which the world in general knows so little, but which exercise so great an influence on public events. 
The secret history of the world was his pastime. His great pleasure was to contrast the hidden motive with the public pretext of transactions. And Ford responds to that, and he says, Here is the international Jew, full dress. He is the protocolist, too, wrapped in mystery, a man whose fingers sweep all the strings of human motive, and who controls the chief of the brutal forces, money. If a non-Jew had limbed, the verb limb is archaic, it means to draw or depict something, whether in art or in words. If a non-Jew had limbed a Sidonia, so truthfully showing the racial history and characteristics of the Jews, he would have been subjected to that pressure which the Jews apply to every truth-teller about themselves. But Disraeli could do it, and one sometimes wonders if Disraeli was not, after all, writing more than a romance, writing indeed a warning for all who can read. And we would rather believe that Disraeli is writing a boast, which he hoped would serve as a warning, with the motive of making the Jews out to be the all-powerful people of God, who cannot fail in their quest for world dominion. And Ford himself is buying the story. In truth, Jews only have power when Christians follow them in their sin. When Christians ever repent, there is, an insur- there is an assurance that the Jew is going to be completely and utterly destroyed. Ford just didn't understand that. He continues, The quotation just given is not the description of Sidonia only. It is also a description, save for the high culture of it, of certain American Jews, perhaps Louis Marshall, right? Or Bernard Baruch or Henry Morgenthau, of certain American Jews who, while they walk in the upper circles, have commerce with the adventurers, and with the secret agents and political spies, and with the secret Jews, like Franklin Roosevelt, and with those subterranean agencies of which the world in general knows so little. This is the strength of Jewry, this commerce between the high and low, For the Jew knows nothing disreputable within the circle of Jewishness. No Jew becomes an outcast, whatever he may do. A place and a work await him, whatever his character. And that's absolutely true. There are highly placed persons in New York who would rather not have it known what they contributed to the adventurer who left New York to overturn Russia. Speaking of Vladimir Lenin. There are other Jews who would rather not have it printed how much they know of secret agents and political spies. Disraeli did more than draw Sidonia. He portrayed the international Jew as he is also found in America. Thus far Sidonia is described from the outside, but now he begins to speak for himself, meaning up to this page in the book which Ford has arrived at and it is in behalf and praise of the Jews. He is discussing the discrimination practiced against his people in England. It is the old story. Everywhere, even in the United States, the same story. Crying for pity while usurping power. 
We poor Jews, wails a New York multimillionaire, at whose finger legislators quail, and even presidents of the United States grow respectful. The following quotation was written in 1844. Bertans must be impressed with its uncanny parallel to their affairs today. It is Sidonia's speaking. Yet, since your society has become agitated in England, and powerful combinations menace your institutions, you find the once loyal Hebrew invariably arrayed in the same ranks as the leveler and the latitudinarian. Latitudinarian. Yes, that's a word. And prepared to support the policy, which may even endanger his life and property, rather than tamely continue under a system which seeks to degrade him. To be a latitudinarian is to seek liberties in small increments until that the institution or government just disintegrates, right? Once again, the Jews are not Hebrews. Society in England did at times become agitated. However, in England the agitation was always restrained. We would posit the opinion that if perhaps English society never became agitated, then the Jews who run England would not have been able to conceal their hand in all of the treachery which had been occurring on the continent. So the agitation in England was latitudinarian, but it was stopped at certain limits. The order was never overthrown because the Jews had already controlled it. Ford continues, Consider that latitudinarianism is the doctrine of the protocols in a word. It is a breakup by means of a welter of so-called liberal ideas, which construct nothing themselves, but have power to destroy the established order by giving latitude to people a little step at a time. Note also Disraeli's answer to the question sometimes asked, if the Jews suffer under Bolshevism, why do they support it? Or the Jewish spokesman's form of it? If we are so powerful, why do we suffer in the disorder of the world? The disorder is always a step to a new degree of Jewish power. Some of Ford's observations are astute, and some of them are completely blind. Jews suffer willingly for that. But even so, they do not suffer as the non-Jews do. The Soviets permit relief to enter Russia for the Jews. In Poland, the starving war sufferers are able to glut all available ships in taking high-priced passage to America. They are not suffering as other people are, but, as Disraeli sees, they are willing to suffer because they see in every breakdown of Gentile society a new opportunity for the Jewish power to dig nearer to the central seat of power. Just how the Jew works to break down the established order of things by means of ideas, as the protocols claim, is shown in this same conversation of Sidonia. Quoting Disraeli once again, The Tories lose an important election at a critical moment. It's the Jews come forward to vote against them. The Church is alarmed at the scheme of a latitudinarian university.
and learns with relief that funds are not forthcoming for its establishment, a Jew immediately advances and endows it. If these words had been written by a non-Jew, the cry of anti-Semitism would ring through the land. They are true, neither more nor less true, because written by a Jew, and Sidonia adds, and every generation that they, ju- that they must become more powerful and more dangerous to the society that is hostile to them. Ford responds, Well, several generations had passed since these words were written. 85 years, 86 years. The Jew still regards every form of non-Jewish society as hostile to him. He reorganizes strongly against society. And if Disraeli is to be taken as a prophet, his words remain. They must become more powerful and more dangerous. They have become more powerful. Whoso would measure the danger, look around. And Disraeli was not a prophet. Any more than the protocols were a prophecy. Rather, he too, in his own way, was boasting of Jewish power, and the warning is only evident when the Gentiles notice it. But it is always already too late. Just like the Russian prince had told Sergei Nihilus that it was too late by the time he had read the protocols. So Ford continues, Let the charming Sidonia proceed with his revelations. And he offers another quote from Disraeli's book. I told you just now that I was going up to town tomorrow because I always made it a rule to interpose when affairs of state were on the carpet. Otherwise, I never interfere. I hear of peace and war in newspapers, but I am never alarmed, except when I am am informed that the sovereigns want treasure, in other words, loans. Then I know that monarchs are serious. And Ford says, It will be remembered that Sidonia held no governmental position. The time had not come for that. Power was exercised behind the scenes long before the craving for the spotlight was gratified. But whether there be Jews in office or not, the power they exercise behind the scenes, the dragon behind the scenes giving its power to the beast, is always greater than the power they show in the open. It can be seen, therefore, that the more numerous they are in office, the greater their secret power. Sidonia continues, again quoting the book, A few years back we were applied to by Russia. Now there has been no courtship, I'm sorry, no friendship, between the court of St. Petersburg and my family, meaning Sidonia's family, meaning the Rothschilds, I'm sorry. It has Dutch connections which have generally supplied it, and our representations in favor of the Polish Hebrew, a lie, a numerous race, but the most suffering and degraded of all the tribes, the tribes of the Jews, have not been very agreeable to the Tsar. However, circumstances drew to an approximation between the Romanovs and the Sidonias. I resolved to go myself to St. Petersburg. I had on my arrival an interview with the Russian Minister of Finance, Count Kankrin. I beheld the son of a Lithuanian Jew. In other words, he's bragging that the Russian Minister of Finance was a Jew, 
we shouldn't be surprised. At the same time, so is the United States Treasury Secretary. So is the Confederate Treasury Secretary. There were Judases holding the money bag all over the world. And there still are. Perpetuating the lie that the Jews are Hebrews, along with the boastful admission that the Jews are ministers of finance, even in Russia, a nation typically hostile to Jews. Back to Ford. The loan was connected with the affairs of Spain. I resolved on repairing to Spain from Russia. I traveled without intermission. I had an audience immediately on my arrival with the Spanish minister, Senor Mendizabal. 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 Kind of sounds like Babylonish. I held one like myself, the son of a Nuevo Cristiano, a Jew of Aragon, saying that this Senor Mendizabal, this Spanish minister, was actually a Jew. Disraeli was one such new Christian, a baptized Jew, which was the polite colloquial term for conversos in Spain, Nuevo Cristiano. Otherwise, more fittingly, they were called Moranos, or pigs. In consequence, quoting Ford, who is quoting Coningsby, in consequence of what transpired at Madrid, I went straight to Paris to consult the president of the French Council. I beheld the son of a French Jew, a hero, an imperial marshal. And Ford didn't repeat his name, but that's okay. Ford says that if Sidonia were traveling today, he would find whole groups of Jews. Where, in his day, he found one, he would find them in exalted places. Suppose Disraeli were alive today and should revive revise Coningsby, including the United States in the tour of this money master of the world. What a host of Jewish names he could gather from official circles in Washington and New York. Such a host indeed as makes the occasional Gentile look like a foreigner who had been graciously permitted to come in by the Jews. There were at least a million and a half Jews in New York, and a great number of them in positions of power when Ford wrote this. To continue, I don't know if LaGuardia was the mayor or not yet. The consequence of our consultations was that some northern power should be applied to in a friendly and mediative capacity. We fixed on Prussia, and the president of the council made an application to the Prussian minister, who attended a few days after our conference. Count Arnim entered the cabinet, and I beheld a Prussian Jew. So we see Disraeli boasting through this Sidania character that there are Jews in every influential cabinet position in every nation of Europe, practically. Hitler complained of many of the intermarriages between the Prussian nobility and the Jews, which evidently precipitated the short-lived Prussian rise to the hegemony of Europe in the 19th century. And those who had the visible rule, Otto von Bismarck, as well as Wilhelm I, were both Freemasons. Ford continues, Sidania's comment upon all this is offered as an address to every reader of this article. And he quotes once more. So you see, my dear Coningsby, 
that the world is governed by very different personages from what is imagined by those who were not behind the scenes. And that's a famous quote from Disraeli. And Ford responds, it is indeed. Why not let the world see behind the scenes for a little? Or just a little, as we might say today. This is nothing new. It is actually a circumstance as old as time itself. And it was only recently, with the rise of humanism and the disintegration of Christianity in Northern Europe, But even under the popes, Jews and conversos frequently had undue control and influence. As it says in the Revelation, the dragon gives its power to the beast, and it is no different today. Ford continues, and he says, and now for the most illuminating lines Disraeli ever wrote. Lines which half compelled the thought that maybe, after all, he was writing to warn the world of Jewish ambition for power, which evidently they already had. He's kind of uh, a couple of hundred years late. And he quotes Coningsby once more. You never observe a great intellectual movement in Europe in which the Jews do not greatly participate because they put themselves at the front of every parade. We see that today. We've seen that just recently with Donald Trump's presidential candidacy and the alt-right movement, where Jews put themselves right in front of the alt-right parade so that they could control it. They did the same thing with the Republicans years ago and with every upstart party. I'll rewind a sentence and, and keep my mouth closed now until I finish the paragraph. You never observe a great intellectual movement in Europe in which the Jews do not greatly participate. The first Jews, the first Jesuits were Jews. That mysterious Russian diplomacy, which so alarms Western Europe, is organized and principally carried on by Jews. That mighty revolution, which is at the moment preparing in Germany, and which will be in fact a second and greater reformation, and of which so little is yet known in England, is entirely developing under the auspices of the Jews. And Ford responds. American Jews say that the protocols are inventions. Is Benjamin Disraeli an invention? Was this Jewish Prime Minister of Great Britain misrepresenting his people? Are not his portrayals taken as true history? And what does he say? He shows that in Russia, the very country where the Jews complained they were least free, the Jews were in control. He shows that the Jews know the technique of revolution, foretelling in his book the revolution that later broke out in Germany. How did he foreknow it? Because that revolution was developing under the auspices of Jews. And though it was then true that so little is yet known in England, Disraeli the Jew knew it, and knew it to be Jewish in origin and development and purpose. And we would say that Disraeli the Jew knew it, because he was an agent of the Rothschilds who bought and paid for it. Disraeli was not truth-telling, but rather he was boasting and hoping to signal Jewish power to his readers in a way that would put the whole world in fear of the Jews so that no man would rise against them. So he made not a prophecy, 
but rather he revealed a part of a plan so that when it happened his readers would indeed be in, so that when it happened when the plan was actually executed his readers would indeed be in fear ford continues one point is sure disraeli told the truth he presented his people before the world with correctness and we would of course dispute that he limbs or depicts Jewish power, Jewish purpose, and Jewish method with a certainty of touch that betokens more than knowledge. He shows racial sympathy and understanding. He sets forth the facts which this series is setting forth, meaning his series on the international Jew. Why did he do it? Was it boastfulness, that dangerous spirit in which the Jew gives up most of his secrets, or was it conscience impelling him to tell the world of Judah's designs? No matter, he told the truth. He is one man who told the truth about being accused of misrepresenting the Jews. And that was from the Dearborn Independent from December 18, 1920. Notice that Sidonia is named for Sidon, one of the foremost of the cities of the ancient Canaanites. So even his character was named for his true ancestors. What is true is that there are no good Jews, and there are no truth-telling Jews. When a Jew moves his lips, he is lying, even if he tells the truth in order to perpetuate a greater lie or to create a false impression. And Henry Ford didn't even catch it. A bad tree cannot possibly produce good fruit. And the fruit of the Jews has been absolutely rotten for all generations. Why couldn't even Henry Ford see the pattern? Disraeli told a little truth, but with it he perpetuated a multitude of lies. And it is the acceptance of those lies that continues to keep the Jews in power. The acceptance of the Jews' lies about the Bible and ancient history is exactly what keeps them in power. When the mask is pulled off, only then can Christians even begin to overcome the devil. And with that, we must say that only Christian identity pulls the mask off from the Jew. But when will the fat and happy masses ever listen? Perhaps when they're no longer so fat or so happy. We will return <laughs> to our actual presentation of the protocols probably next week. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening and good night. Mm-hmm.